0: Welcome to this special two part episode of TechCube with our takeover hosts, Eloisa Tovey, Chris Dunkley, and Sandeep Nidja, featuring the rather brilliant Gene Kim as they delve into themes explored in his latest book, The Unicorn Project. Sit back and enjoy part one of this episode as Eloisa, Chris, and Sandeep untangle the truths and present perspectives of DevOps. listeners and welcome to today's podcast live from ECS Digital's HQ in the heart of London. Um, I'm Eloisa and I will be your host alongside two of my esteemed colleagues. We've got Sandeep and Chris. Uh, well, you can't actually you can't see their faces right now. So I'm uh, all extremely happy to be here. Um, but even more excited because we are joined um, by Gene Kim himself, a multi-award winning CTO, researcher, author, and proud DevOps enthusiast. It's an absolute pleasure, Gene, how are you? I'm
1: doing great, Ellie, and hello, Chris and Sandeep. Great to be here. Hello. hello. Good.
0: Um, so actually, I think Sandeep had a really good question to kick this off. Okay. Oh, no, it was Chris, actually. Chris, I think you had your first question. Yes, yeah, oh, so I
2: think um, when I went around and spoke to a number of our sort of DevOps engineers, uh, here at ECS, I think the core question that came up was: uh, Where are we with DevOps? Yeah. Um, where have we got to so far um, on this journey that we've been on since uh, your your first book and and everything else you've been doing in the interim? Um, where are we? Where are we now?
1: Oh, for sure. And I th- I think maybe if I could just take a uh, step back for a moment and just sort of, uh, maybe address like why another book? Why the Unicorn Project after the Phoenix Project and the DevOps Handbook? And I think there are a couple of problems that still remain. One is Uh, The absence of understanding of all the invisible structures required to enable developer productivity. Um, And so that's certainly one of the the areas I wanted to explore in the Unicorn Project. Uh, The second is this orthogonal problem uh, to the one that the DevOps community found. So they justly uh, pointed out that it was so difficult to get code to where it needed to go, which is in production, uh, uh, where uh, customers could actually get value. And there's a similar problem of how do we get data? to where it needs to go. So it's locked in systems records and uh, data warehouses, how do you get it uh, to where it needs to go, which is in the hands of developers so that uh, we can use it in our daily work. Uh, Third is there's often very strong opposition to uh, support new ways of working. And uh, the last one is you know ambiguity in terms of what exact behaviors are needed from our leadership to support uh, this transformation. And so uh, the uh, mechanism t- that we addressed in the Unicorn Project is the five ideal. So the first is locality and simplicity. Uh, the second ideal is uh, what I think the outcomes are focus, flow, and joy. Uh, the third ideal is improvement of daily work. Uh, the fourth ideal is psychological safety. And the fifth ideal is uh, customer focus. And so, to your question, Chris, uh, like where are we? I mean, I think we're at best three to 5% of the way in. And then, you know, here's kind of my math. Um, so DevOps principles and practices, I think we're pioneered at the tech giants, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft. And at best, there's a half million, uh, three quarters of a million uh, engineers there. And you know, out of the population of 18 million. And so I think the goal is how do we get every one of those engineers working as productively as if we were at a Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. And I think by the math, you know, we're about 5%. Um, and so I think the DevOps enterprise community is at the forefront of that. Uh, showing that it can be done in large complex organizations, but uh, we have, you know, we have a long way to go 95% And I don't think that's a cause for pessimism. You know, that's a cause for optimism because you know The best days are still to come and uh, ECS is very much at the forefront of uh, helping organizations get there
2: Appreciate that. Thank you Perfect.
0: Um, so obviously we've all been really excited about this I actually grabbed a initial copy of uh, the unicorn project at mm. does this year and uh-huh. um, back in June and um, immediately shared it across your organization. Um, at ESS Digital, you're actually a little bit of a celebrity. Everyone was encouraged <laughs> to read um, your initial book, The Phoenix Project, um, before they were allowed out on site. So it became a much followed book within our organization and we can imagine helped a lot of people. Um, Sandeep was actually talking earlier today about Kind of the ideals that really struck a chord of him, yeah. and I think that's where he'd like to pick up now. Yeah,
3: I mean, yeah, um, I come from sort of an engineering background, and, and one of my favorite parts of the book is that whole when they release the Phoenix project, right? And they're, <laughs> they're, they're logging into sort of terminals, they're finding you know file passing issues, they're debugging. <laughs> I think you really really capture the emotion of what it's like to be in that scenario, the relief of finding something <laughs> and the, the diagnosing the problem, but then the reality dawns and you actually we're not out of the woods yet. There's still <laughs> so much more to do. Does that come from uh, an experience you've actually had? Because I'm really interested in if you've actually experienced that before. And that's, all, that's why it was so kind of real. They're
0: putting you on the spot there, dude. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, for sure.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, I,
1: I loved um, I, the, those scenes. I, I loved just because uh, they're kind of inspired by these space battle scenes and, you know, Star Wars yeah. and so forth. And, uh, or like, you know, these World War II movies of just the unending kind of uh, suffering <laughs> <It> caused by <laughs> protracted uh, outages. Um, one of my favorite scenes is what you allude to, Sandeep, is uh, in the middle of the Phoenix rollout. Yeah, uh, you, know, you think that the, for the Phoenix project, you would think that the worst part was a database schema <laughs> change that would take five hours to, to, to finish, yeah. but uh, it turns out that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was when West goes to Brent and Maxine and says, um, all the prices have disappeared from the mobile yeah. app and <laughs> exactly. the e-commerce site, and uh, that was actually based on how some real-life stories and uh, something very specific that happened to me, which was uh, uh, a comma-separated, uh, a CSV file uh, <laughs> with a byte order mark, and uh, someone actually did that to me. And that person is Dr. Nicole Forsgren. Uh, she she <laughs> gave me a, uh, an export out of SPSS, and it must have taken me four or five hours. Uh, because I couldn't figure out why none of the keys matched and I thought I was going yeah. crazy and Jez otherwise when I finally found I remember Googling what is it? E E F F, you know, the, <laughs> and then learning about the byte order mark. And I, I remember posting a Slack channel um and uh uh Jez Humble um you know Crapped his pants because he thought it was uh, his fault. <laughs> he couldn't understand like how it got into the file. It turns out, you know, if you don't select local encoding inside of SPSS, it will automatically um, put in the byte order marker. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, I just uh, for me, I got just such great satisfaction out of um, uh, putting that in there because uh, uh, just a bewilderment and confusion about why something isn't working the way you think it should be when it's really. Uh, because not fully appreciating uncontrolled user input, <laughs> or something yeah, that's being generated yeah. by a program. I mean, that was uh, that was very much based on uh, personal experience, and
3: yeah, uh, yeah.
1: Uh, I, I just love it because um, even if you've bitten by been bitten by it before, yeah, you can still get bitten by it <laughs> just because yeah, uh, assumptions yeah. we make. Uh, exactly.
3: Yeah, but that you know that that really highlights, uh, I think, one of the, the the themes in the book this this disconnect between business and technology and, and we see it sort of every day on on client site and from my perspective it's for development teams it's, it's getting better because we've got things like and tools like behavior driven development and processes like that that brings the business into the development team and and the development teams that i've worked with are actually quite open to to seeing you know business ideas and delivering what the business wants on an outcome basis but I find it hard to see the same behaviours from the business Them really appreciating and understanding the complexity of delivering something, the, the pressures they put on technology. I mean, there is a gap, I think. I think we both agree on that. What's your opinion on it? And what do you think we need to do to close that, 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 that chasm between the business and, and the development team and IT?
1: Oh, yeah, that is such a great question. So I, I've been talking to a gentleman named uh, Peter Moore. He's actually the brother of Dr. Geoffrey Moore, who wrote The Crossing the Chasm book, and uh, the yeah. book that very much influenced uh, The Unicorn Project, which is his book, Zones to Win. Uh, and that's where the notion of core versus context comes in, which is kind of underpins the fifth ideal. But uh, Peter Moore, I mean, he's so, um, yeah, he's so thoughtful and interesting. He said, I'm the furthest thing from a uh, um, you know one of the quote redshirt developers in your book uh, he says I'm the I, I wouldn't know no no quote from him I don't know why I asked from my elbow but even I know that for these executives the most important person in their organizations are these developers uh, who are on the frontier of these uh, digital business transformations um, and so the most important thing for them are to understand their daily work and understand the obstacles that are in the way and uh, help eliminate those obstacles. So um, I love the the circles of the three circles, right? It's the concentric rings of circle of control versus influence versus concern. Uh, you know, it's very difficult for us to change other people's thinking and their value systems. Uh, so I think the more direct route, just if we can't do that, then what can we do? And I do mm-hmm. love the scene in the Unicorn Project where Maxine uh, Basically, shadows uh, a store manager in the yeah. retail stores mm-hmm. and goes through the employee, the store manager new employee training. And yeah, uh, you know, I think shadowing is one of the most valuable things because uh, we learn, we literally walk in the shoes of others. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I, I think you know whether we shadow customers or shadow our uh, colleagues, we, we do learn about their problems and immediately, um, you know, we want to help. Ameliorate the problems that we see, and I, I think that in general, when we do that right, uh, the uh, reaction is always thank you. You know, thank you so much. Uh, you know, what can I do for you in return? And that's the beginning of a relationship, a more collegial relationship, as opposed to, uh, in this worst, it, it's more like uh, um, you know, customer and supplier, where <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, in the worst supplier relationships, you never thank them; you just acknowledge their, you know, that they're. Uh, performing as uh, as promised, <laughs> and that's not that's, what we want. We want a collegial relationship.
2: That's a fantastic insight. I think like I started my career in customer service, um, and one of the things I've sort of held throughout that uh, throughout my career is the belief that if the customer service team are included on conversations about product capability, <laughs> product issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and included as part of that dialogue, not only a are they like fascinated to be part of the conversation about something wider than just their day to day job. Of self and customer complaints but secondly the value they bring from a sort of a qualitative perspective, perspective to a conversation is really really insightful um and that goes back to the point that Sandy was making about the separation between the business and the, and the and the engineers and i guess um yeah is it is it about time we started to not consider the two as separate entities <laughs> yeah
1: in fact, it's, it's a terrible thing right in fact uh, in mark schwartz's book seat at the table and i think mark schwartz is just one of those brilliant thinkers uh, out there a philosophy um, major <laughs> doing philosophy um, you know he, he actually does so brilliantly describe how, even the language you use we kind of encourage that we call ourselves technology and the business
0: mm-hmm. uh, in
1: fact uh, in the the Phoenix project the subtitle in an earlier draft was um, a novel about devops it and helping the business win and uh, kind of at the last minute we we swapped it out just because it did Kind of fall into that trap, and we changed to a novel about DevOps, IT, DevOps, and helping our business win or is our, your business win. Um, so, uh, yeah, just, just to, and in fact, in the Unicorn Project, we explored a little further. There's a scene where uh, the rebellion is meeting with the enterprise security person, and they're okay. like, Al, oh, and we'd love to, you know, move you higher in the queue, but uh, we can't because of the business <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, because they're our customer. And uh, I think it was Shannon who said uh, they're not our customer; they're our colleagues. Right? Yeah. You know, they're, yeah. You know it's uh, uh, it is not a supplier vendor relationship, right? It is one of you know, yeah. uh, people. We should be working together to achieve a common objective, uh, and there is no intermediary. So yeah, I, I agree with you, I and mean, I think it's something that I wanted to. Explored surface very directly and that came from um, uh, brian finster and dana finster at walmart where uh, <laughs> They're not our customers they are our colleagues that came straight from uh walmart a famous retailer
0: I think what I find fascinating is um, so i'm actually not a tech person I'd say i'm a woman in tech and I work in tech But what I find really fascinating is this open source community that you have mm-hmm. and a lot of our um a lot of our engineers within the business will go to meetups through throughout the year and what I find really interesting is this idea of like, opening the doors and again people learning from past experiences etc and actually considering how closed most businesses are and they keep yeah. their secrets quite to, like, <laughs> to their yeah. chest, what I find actually is those who are experimenting with DevOps and those more agile ways and those which are coming through as disruptors, they're mm-hmm. the ones who are saying actually let's share that journey, let's kind of let's learn together and grow. Um, And I think, I don't know, is is there, are you starting to see that kind of the older organizations are also following in that stead or they're still quite reserved and maybe we need to encourage them to... Open their doors a bit more.
2: To... I think I think it's difficult in the industry working. I think Gene's probably got an opinion on it, but it's difficult in some of the industries we work in, uh, especially sort of finance sectors, yeah. where there's like a high sort of requirement for security and closed doors, and that's a really difficult gap to bridge yeah. um, between uh, stifling innovation and creativity and sharing what what you've got with other people and letting that grow organically so security, and being able to preserve then. your product and, yeah. and 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 the heart of your business. Yeah. So there is a big. It's a big trade-off. In some industries, it works amazing, yeah. and in others, I think it's more difficult. Um, I don't know what you yeah, think. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, fascinating. I think
1: you know I've learned so much from the DevOps Enterprise community. And in fact, uh, you know that book is certainly inspired by and certainly dedicated to all of their achievements. And, and yeah, it is amazing. You see these rebellions, um, a, a cer- certainly trying to. Overthrow kind of this ancient powerful order, and uh, I agree with you, Chris. And that's why I'm so inspired by organizations like Capital One. So you know, in the U.S. and in the U.K., in the, in the U.S. there's probably the fifth largest um, uh, bank, and uh, you know, they are one of the pioneers of open sourcing uh, some of you know not what they would consider banking core, but uh, you know, there's a pro- project called Hygieia, uh that uh, helps monitor uh, CICD pipelines for health metrics. Um, you know, they've. Uh, open source of a whole bunch of these amazing projects, and uh, uh, I, I think, in my mind, are kind of represent, you know, the, the future of these dynamic learning organizations, mm-hmm. where, uh you know, as Ellie, as you mentioned, you know, learning happens in many ways. We learn from our uh, colleagues and our, sometimes even our competitors, <laughs> and uh, uh, for whatever, however they do the algebra or calculus, you know, they say that, you know, this is actually better for the, our, our organization. Yeah. Uh, and that we're and not going to win. Well. Yeah, actually,
0: right. Like they're still doing well, and so even if you're struggling, you're having these challenges. In Capital One, one of the five largest companies over in the US, right? Like, so great, you're going through this tr- um, more of a struggle mm. trying to transform, but actually you're still succeeding, and again bring people along on that journey as well, rather than.
1: Yeah. Um, in fact, I had a. In fact, in London, I was at the Velocity Conference in the. Uh, this must have been 2014, and we're asking, why do companies like Etsy uh, and Netflix, why do they show up at every conference? Um, yeah. And uh, then they turned around and there was uh, Michael Rambetzi, who was VP of operations at Etsy, <laughs> and so we asked him, <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, every employee at Etsy, uh, they're required to do, uh, every year, they're required to write either three blog posts, com- uh, present mm-hmm. three talks, or open source three projects. And it was, it was a part of um, this desire to create, uh, and, uh, Great engineering culture, and also helps with hiring, and and so I, I can't ascribe that to yeah. all of these organizations, but uh, in in this competitive marketplace where every talk that you hear from these great engineering organizations that we're hiring, <laughs> you know, yeah. I think it does help that you have these kind of um, amazing open source projects that people can point to to say, you know, uh, you're not going to just grind away uh, in a feature factory. You're you're going to be working on you know great things to solve problems that are universal to everybody.
2: So. Yeah. Hi. I would love to pick your brains more about the recruitment stuff but we've done quite a lot of podcasts on recruitment for now. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah,
3: I guess sort of when you talk about these 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 highly advanced organizations such as Facebook and Amazon and you draw on some data points in the book and um I learned something new actually from from reading that that part where you talked about you know, a number of companies came to sort of crossroads, right? They, the market was becoming more, more competitive and consumer needs were changing. Amazon adapted, right? They, I think you, you cited they spent 1 billion pounds or dollars over six years. They re-engineered their platform, their architecture, decoupled their architecture so they can essentially move quicker. Whilst Nokia on the other hand, <laughs> they, they, they I don't know how much they spent, but they didn't actually look at the systems. They tried to, do an agile transformation, which is more about process, right? And thus losing a lot of market share to their competitors. I, I guess my question is what comes first? Like in that example, it was engineering for both Amazon and, and, and Nokia, but Amazon made the right decision. Should engineering come first in all cases or is, is it a sort of a chicken and egg scenario? Can you do both in, in, in parallel? We see, in my opinion, I think engineering should come first. I think I think that's the, the the train track. It enables you to do things like iterative development. Without a modern architecture, it's very hard to be agile. Mm. And then you have to, you know, spin up things like scaled agile framework and other sort of, you know, um, <laughs> enterprise agile solutions. But to be truly agile, it it seems as if it's an engineering feat um, first before you go into the process. I just want to get your thoughts on that. What you think?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So I mean, I I think. Um, yeah, there's a, I think there's a lot to, uh, by the way, I love that Nokia story, and, and that <laughs> book, uh, Risto Salasma's book, uh, "Transforming Nokia, is without doubt, one of the best books I've read in the last decade. And, right. uh-huh. and it wasn't that they lost customers, I mean, they lost the entire market, right? That was yeah, the, yeah. We witnessed the decimation of 95% uh, of the market cap of uh, Nokia. Uh, and and I, I think the uh, the the reason was essentially, that teams lost the ability to work with locality and simplicity, right? That, uh, And as Mr. Salasma said, as, as a board chair of Nokia, he said when he learned when the Symbian OS build times was 48 hours, he said it felt like being hit in the head with a sledgehammer because he knew that if every developer had to wait 48 hours to determine whether the change worked or would have to be redone, then this thing that uh, they had. Pinned all near-term hopes for near-term profitability and long-term viability was an illusion. <laughs> it just mm-hmm. that was, in my mind, that is just poetic. And and yeah. as you allude to, uh, that is not the path that the other organization avoided. Near-death experiences went down: Microsoft, Amazon, mm-hmm. Netflix, Google. Um,
0: Do you think and, it took one person to fail substantially for everyone to go? Okay,
1: yeah.
0: we should. Did they learn a lesson there? Or was it not luck, but there was just yeah. better no, I think.
1: Yeah, I think these are independent events. Uh, mm-hmm. And what uh the ones who survived realized is that our company survival depends at, like was so Slossman, uh surmised, right? Is that our company survival depends on uh making an reef platform, making a platform so that developers could work again independently so they can independently develop mm-hmm. test and deploy value to customers. So yeah. your your question is like is that does engineering come first? I think uh I, I even heard this for, uh, when i was talking to the founders of the air force uh us air force kessel run project uh, it was a, a, a they said it's not a rebellion uh it was a revolution <laughs> so kessel run was a smuggling run inside of star wars where they yeah. uh redid uh they recreated the ability to create software within the us air force as opposed to uh, an entire you know the department of defense uh, system integrator um industrial mm-hmm. ecosystem and uh uh, you know he said we didn't want to fall into the alignment trap uh you know it's important to recreate these capabilities, just do the work in the in a in this radically different way uh to sh- show what those behaviors look like, what it feels like uh, and it almost didn't matter what we worked on uh It's more important that we worked in a different way and then they you know finally uh, um you know did a couple of trials on, you know, with more strategic intent. Uh, and one of them was the uh, um, air refueling um, systems that basically allow tankers to um, refuel uh, aircraft in midair. So it's all, all the logistical mm-hmm. and scheduling systems. <laughs> so yeah, there's enormous savings in any theater. So anyway, it's just, uh, I think that goes a long way in saying that uh, it it is almost better to just start doing it, um, uh, just to practice so that when the opportunity arises, you know, that, uh, the engineering organization can rise up to the challenge. Mm, mm, mm. So this is not no, to say that it should always be divorced from business yeah. initiatives, but
3: yeah. you know. yeah. I guess what's even surprising about the Nokia example is they made such good phones. You, they, <laughs> they are fundamentally an engineering organization, right? If you remember the 3110 phones, you yeah. can literally just throw them against the wall, drop them <laughs> from 10 stories, and they just would not break, right? Yeah. And, and for a company like Nokia that was so focused on engineering and, and products, for them to miss that, for them to actually miss the fact that actually there's a new market force, yeah. software now, and and you know we have to be more adaptable. It's just maybe I do maybe it was some arrogance that crept into what they did. I'm I, not oh. read the book, Nokia book, but I'm I'm sure it gives some insights into that.
1: Yeah, but, it was it was almost uh, the reading this book was on the one hand brilliant, and it, I felt anguish because I felt the same yeah. thing as like uh, what what happened um, and. You know I think the common narrative is that they were too stupid <laughs> to have seen <laughs> you know the the dangers I found and when it was really not the case I mean they had thousands of engineers and and they were propping up uh this uh symbian uh you know to to because they thought that it's a savior um and what they didn't see was that developer productivity was so low on that um and uh, i think one of the most intriguing insights that uh Salasma brings to bear is that uh He also noticed that Nokia performed in the lowest quartile of the McKinsey culture scores, and so it was a proxy for to what extent do uh, for psychological safety. Uh, To what extent do people actually feel innovative, and can they bring their best work? Is it free to share? You know, can you share problems? And and so kind of this alternate narrative says that people knew about these problems, but it never got to the levels of leadership that mattered and they were, never could make an impact and change. Unlike uh, say at Microsoft where Bill Gates put out a memo that said if a developer has to have to choose between a feature or a security f- defect, fix the security defect. Amazon said, Thou shalt, teams will never talk to each other directly, they must go through uh, APIs. right? And so, you know, that's kind of the opposite outcome. Mm.
0: Communication yeah. is key, it is. And, and, leadership,
1: uh, and leadership and culture, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah.
2: It's really interesting you say that because that's like almost how the Phoenix project um, internally um, has sort of been siphoned off away from everyone else. And it's squirreled away as a separate project. Um, whereas it is the biggest project, but there's people who are working in the sort of day-to-day operations of the business are completely isolated. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, the project is called project, the Phoenix project. right? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, so, sorry. Yeah, So I've worked in that kind of space where, they're like, and it almost feels like a vortex of like sucking resources in <laughs> from all across the business. Like, people, we need more people. We need more people. We need more budget. We need more time. And you constantly feel this sense. The whole business, even people I think probably who worked in that environment, feel a sense of um, resentment towards the project yeah. because it's it's taken everything and and it's not given anything back yet.
1: Oh, it's heartbreaking. In fact, yeah, so in the Phoenix Project, you know, the, the product owners don't show up for the stand-ups. <laughs> they don't show up for the de- demos when you know to see what the developers mm. have written. Um, and you have, you know, uh, scores of developers, um, uh, you know, just sitting around because they can't even do builds, right? So it's just, mm. I love the juxtaposition that it is the most important project and yet no one can get anything done. Maxine, the this uber, you know, uh, incredible pinnacle of engineering talent, which is exiled to the Phoenix project and can't do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like, yeah. um,
0: I, we find that occasionally. Um, again, I, I sit in the office and <laughs> I have the engineers come in saying that, you know, they've waited weeks for <laughs> access to things or, you know, laptops, yeah, et Yeah. Laptop.
3: I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a common problem when developer uh, productivity. <laughs> we work in environments where it takes weeks, sometimes months to provision a laptop. And these are big enterprises that have allocated huge budgets <laughs> yeah. to digital transformation. Mm-hmm. So from, from yourself, I mean, is there anything that you can do to convince them to you know <laughs> to, to, to just sort that out, right? The basic fundamentals of actually helping developers uh, do their work.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. In fact, uh, a friend of mine, Michael Winslow uh, from Comcast, uh, he was in a similar situation um, uh, and he was actually on the desktop support, you know, uh, side uh, in the back office. And uh he, <laughs> He he actually uh, saw this happening, and he broke all the rules and said, "All right, give them the equivalent of a Comcast uh, employee laptop, and uh, I'll take the blame if something goes wrong." But uh, you know, he, he saw scores of developers who were spending weeks, months in the similar situations, and it took someone yeah. to do something very kind of almost heroic in front of the invisible side of the business, right? Uh, and um, and also inspired by a friend at um, who's formerly at a, a the one of the largest U.S. banks, and he said you know, he was part of an effort to hire Silicon Valley developers, and um, uh, you know paying at the top. Pay grades, and they had a six-week onboarding process before <laughs> you know developers actually write code. And he found that the majority of yeah. developers they hired uh, quit long before then, just because mm-hmm. <laughs> the norm that's been set in the tech giants is that you know at Facebook you'll be doing your first deploy within your first week. At Etsy, yeah, you'll be right. doing your deploy in the first day. And mm-hmm. so, no matter how good the pay is, at a certain mm-hmm. point, uh, developers we really want to be doing development work and not going through compliance training or <laughs> waiting for laptops to show up. So I thought that was fascinating.
2: Yeah, I think that's quite interesting. Cause like when we go on to some of the engagements we work on, um, and it takes a long time to get machines we come in and it's almost like people want us to start the next day because they're very keen to get us involved and very keen to start a project with us which is great but yeah. we're the we're like the edge case yeah. most people are like i've got a month notice period before mm-hmm. they can join so they've got a month to sort out their machine it's the <laughs> process is designed for people who like come in via a different mechanism yeah. and we turn up and we're like let's go and everyone's really excited um, and and we get held back a little bit
1: if oh, I could hey, hey. Just motivate three things, right? kind of these, I don't say this explicitly, but it uh, very much um is been reinforced uh, even after the Unicorn project comes out. So those are kind of three classes of work. You, know, you got the features and any any you know, any person of savvy and sophistication can get budget for a feature, an app, yeah, you know, because you know, we see it, right? Um, yeah. then there's kind of the APIs and the back end system. So that's tougher to get budget and justification for because it's not as visible, but uh Uh, And then the third one is probably the most excruciatingly uh, difficult to fund, which is the systems that developers use in the daily work. Um, And so this is like what killed Nokia. And so if you look at the tech giants, right, uh, you take a look at their priorities, they're spending the most amount of effort on dev productivity. Uh, Their best developers, you know, they hire PhDs in static code analysis, you know, just to help extract more developer productivity. Um, And, you know, in the Unicorn project, it was really, kind of delightful to say, just show how helpless developers were. Uh, yeah. You know, that scene where they're helping Maggie's kind of uh, data science team. They couldn't do anything because they couldn't get data or access APIs. <laughs> and so yeah. it really does kind of suggest that uh, in most organizations, they have the priorities completely reversed. How do you get developers productive ideally on the first day? How do we make sure that anybody can get access to the data they need, right? Without yeah. having to wait nine months. And then yeah. you can write features, <laughs> right? So that's kind of a, a claim that is uh, gently made uh, in, in the Unicorn Project.
3: Well, that's an excellent point as well, because if I sort of look look at these big transformation programs, there's always some kind of mission goal and statement around <laughs> giving customers what they want quicker, more frequently, giving customers <laughs> what they need, right? And then everybody takes that message as gospel and, and like you say, tries to build the features, tries to get those things. You know, you get budget for the features. It's really interesting that you're flipping that priority and saying, actually, no, enable your developers first. That, that, you're almost saying, well, actually, look at your mission statement, because if you you don't have the productivity enabled, you need to take a good hard look at yourself and actually write into your mission statement something about developer productivity, because only then will the rest of the organization start taking it
1: seriously. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that I, I would agree with that thesis, uh, absolutely.
2: Isn't that almost, is it Sarah in the book? <laughs> yes, yeah, the villain. That's Sarah, <laughs> <in> the <laughs> villain, yes. Yeah. The one, yeah, the villain who, Features, 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 get my project live. Yeah. Um, and no conversation about how.
0: Also, I think you can um, build on that. I think you, you spoke about earlier is the idea that people quit because they're getting bored or they're not being given jobs that they feel <laughs> satisfied with. And actually, um, we spoke about this internally recently. Actually, if you always align somebody's objectives to them as an individual, you're never going to move forward as a team because the whole time they're trying to, again, a feature will get their name on a board somewhere right in front of the right people and will make them look good. Whereas if you're looking at the things in the background, which no one really sees, and I think Sandy, you spoke about this in depth recently, but it's this idea of how do you manage perceived value mm-hmm. as you're going forward because yeah. it's not just your internal teams, but also then how that helps customers and then obviously business as a whole. Did you want to go a little bit more uh, yeah, I
3: mean, we've dealt with things by really going with a UX driven approach, right? And, and trying to make, um, features come alive before you build any back end systems, prototyping, for example. Because with prototyping you can really stimulate somebody's imagination and you can really get the, the check signed, right? You can get the finance just based on a really good prototype, something that looks yeah. good, that fulfills a potential business need. But then you know if you if, if they know that's what they're gonna get, now you can concentrate on the engineering things to kind <coughs> of them. you know they, they've got that vision. They've said this is exactly what we want. So you have you you know what you have, what you have to build. There's no that you don't have to spend time exploring and discovering. You've done that already. Now let's talk about engineering. Now let's talk about developer productivity. Now let's talk about APIs because those are the things that are going to enable everything else, right? right. You, you've given them the, the, I guess guess the uh, the carrot that they're going to get at the end of it and secured your funding.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, I love that, and it wouldn't be great. So right, we uh, we, we create the the prototype of the future that sparks uh, the excitement and uh, engagement from our counterparts in the business that we serve and then then wouldn't it be great if we could actually build it without having to wait 9 months for yeah, the integrations exactly. to be created and, and i think that or, or get the build systems going and uh, yeah I, I i totally agree with that thesis and i think that's really the end state that uh, i, I deal with we all hope for right is that yeah. you know we can once we know what to build we can actually quickly start building it uh, without then having yeah. to wait for scores of other teams to <laughs> you know, to yeah. do stuff for us because also
0: every time that you delay so nine months you're obviously trying to make sure the leadership team who have brought into your idea suddenly remain invested because if it's nine months down the line and for legitimate reasons you've been delayed suddenly you then have to justify why something's like they're not seeing any value or the value that you promised them so it's how you can balance again it helps everything if you can just get that first bit sorted and everything else yeah it's
2: interesting i think there's like alongside that and there needs to be a sort of coupled Uh, cultural change to a degree as well which is there's two bits to what we just talked about which i think i find i've found difficult in the past and one of those is showing someone a prototype can set an expectation that that's what someone's going to get at the end of a piece of work and that's a really difficult conversation to have when you turn around and say actually we made a bunch of changes during the process because of all the stuff we learned and this is a different different thing you're going to get now and the second part of that is again about like shipping value and we talk a lot about value and we need to get value to market yeah. actually sometimes you're going to deliver something that's not going to work yeah and it's still a lesson learned right and yeah. and that's and when you learn that lesson that's when you shift and that's when you change and being able to be dynamic and change quickly on the spot is what devops underpins that's what agile underpins that whole conversation about uh, whether it's value or business impact that you're looking for.
0: So there's a question on the back of that then. Do you find that more established organisations aren't releasing earlier or aren't, they're waiting longer to let something loose because of that fear of reputation being damaged if they do release something and it doesn't work because the expectation against them is so much higher than perhaps these new disruptors who are coming in?
2: I've definitely witnessed that firsthand. And okay. I think that's exactly what the book talks about. Yeah, The book talks about explicitly... Um, the, the Rebellion are doing what the right thing to do is separately from all of the noise <laughs> because, that's happening elsewhere.
0: Because they've been driven by pressure from consumers, right? In, uh, yeah, well,
2: yeah and, but, but the Rebellion are looking to deliver actual value yes, and yeah. like something that's tangible and can be used immediately yeah. rather than, um, which we won't say that everyone in all the development workforce in the Phoenix Project, I'm sure, wants to deliver value. Um, but they struggle because the, the environment isn't conducive to it.
1: And, and I would even go a little bit further is that the kind of the developers on the Phoenix project, they're, they're kind of this, this notion of productivity is kind of an illusion, right? That the developer who's just working on the feature, you know, finish the feature, gives it to testing, works on the next feature, right? And, yeah. and uh, kind of uh, totally independent or divorced from what happens next, and then the, you know, uh, you know, the, the merge scene, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. realizing that everything they generate you know, results in a five-day merge where 50 <laughs> people are trapped in two war rooms. <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, so I, I feel like uh, you know, without seeing it all the way to the end, it really is kind of an illusion, right, that uh, we've actually done something productive.
2: <laughs> yeah. So can we talk quickly about how that, what, how that impacts those people in that space? Cause you see, um, Maxine goes through a period of sickness, right? Which never happens to her. It's not a thing. And we see it like it's not, it happens in every industry. Um, and that's probably related to some kind of burnout example, potentially. Um, let's say, <laughs> um, could be and a it,
3: load of people crammed in a war room and are just spreading
2: diseases. Locality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, so I just think, um, yeah, how that impacts people in that process, how they can become disenfranchised, disillusioned um, potentially um, exhibit like mental health issues as a result of that, or how it might exacerbate existing mental health issues. i um, just wondering what your thoughts are on where mental health plays a part in um, how companies approach DevOps and solving their problems. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, I'll give you a clinical answer. Uh, well, actually, I can't speak clinically. I'm not a clinician. But uh, you know, I think what the data would suggest, and I'll give you a, a more pithy example. Uh, so like the State of DevOps report has shown decisively year over year that culture is a predictor of performance. And so we use the Western organizational typology model, you know, where kind of... Um, you know, kind of the worst performers, we hide bad news, messengers of bad news are shot, we discourage bridging between teams, novelty is discouraged, whereas mm-hmm. generative cultures, uh, we seek information, we seek novelty, we encourage bridging between teams, um, we train messengers to tell bad news, like in blameless post-mortems. Uh, uh, so uh, that is true, Google's shown that psychological safety was one of the top predictors of, uh, and one of the top factors in terms of what made great teams great, as evidenced mm-hmm. by their Project Oxygen. Um, uh, project and it's just a wonderful finding. Uh, but my own personal kind of aha moment on this is that of all the metrics that are discussed in the State of DevOps report, uh, it can it has a very high correlation uh, with you know one question that you can ask, and and for that matter, every technical practice, architectural practice, and cultural norm also correlates with this, and that is asking one question on a scale of one to seven to What degree do we fear doing deployments? Um, so, one is we have no fear at all, we just did one. Seven is we have existential fear of doing deployments, and that's why <laughs> if we could wave a magic wand, the next deployment we'll do is never. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, to me, it just says uh, that in the extreme, right, you, know, you have behaviors like in the Phoenix Project where you never do a deployment, and when you do, they're traumatizing, you know, causes, you know. Uh, physical illness, uh, it causes psychological stress, um, yeah. you know, the pinnacle of conflict. Um, and, and so we actually associate kind of deployments and creating value for customers with something negative. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Whereas in the opposite, you know, deployments are part of daily work and, uh, you know, having customers say, thank you, you know, is tightly coupled to that. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, I, I think the um, that Silicon Valley banking story is an interesting example. Of that is why sit around for six months when I can go someplace else and have that kind of very fast feedback loop of joy, <laughs> not focused yeah. on joy and also creating and creating value for customers. You know, Why would I sit around and waste a month and a half uh, with mm-hmm. no one in sight? So I, I, I actually do believe that. And so I think psychological safety uh, is a prerequisite uh, for high performance. I think it's going to be one of the hallmarks of uh, leadership styles in the next 50 years um, and i think that's evidenced in uh, the transforming nokia book it's in the team of teams book by general stanley mccrystal uh, i think it's uh, at the heart of the toyota production system you can't pull the end on court if you don't feel psychologically safe that yep. it's uh okay to do so so yeah you know, to me that that is obvious and i think it's gonna be the work of many years a very fun work to really kind of uh, substantiate that claim
0: so okay. leading on from that um Within the unicorn project, obviously we talk about rebellion. We talk about people recognizing there's a bigger problem at hand and actually, how do we go about solving this? And you've just mentioned that it does reach a point where your psychological safety is being threatened or hindered in some way. Actually an option is to leave. And what we find sometimes is people don't look for rebellion. They look for the easier option. So um, even if they're psychologically well, they can opt for the door um we're just interested in why in this case in the unicorn project you felt or you put forward the case study of a rebellion and that working in a in an in an organization yeah. of that size
1: oh without a doubt yeah so um uh, many people asked that in the review process of the unicorn project I was like if maxine's so great why did not she leave <laughs> well yeah. it's like but it wouldn't be uh, a story uh, then, would they? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there has to be something credible right and you know i think yeah, it's yeah. um uh, if you look at the largest brands in every industry vertical, or in you know in government agencies, there is a deep sense of mission. You know that uh, I, I remember in the uh, UK HMRC, um, you know the uh, the people who led the uh, the uh, creation of the mobile app for the uh, tax assessment process. I mean, uh, their goal was to make it so that um, a working parent, uh, A single mother could, you know, file her taxes uh, on the bus ride home, right? Yeah. And, you know, how much does it make it easier for her? And, and just a sense of mission,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, and you know, th- that was a rebellion uh, that was you know, <laughs> created within one of the most complex IT estates, you know, um, in the UK, potentially in the in the world. And um, I, I think that is what I learned through the DevOps Enterprise experience: is that each one of these technology leaders they believe in the mission uh and Mm -hmm. uh, some of the largest missions in the world and you know they didn't choose to leave you know Mm they choose a more courageous path to say hey i know what engineering greatness looks like i know what the business objectives are i'm actually going to create a pocket of greatness uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, i'm going to question the way that we do our daily work basic assumptions about how we do our daily work i'm gonna uh, you know, pit myself against very powerful adversaries <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, the ones that uh, succeed are you know, promoted uh, because the organization sees the values they've created and uh, invariably ask them to uh, make an even more meaningful contribution to the organization. And that's not to say that that's the, the good people always win. Yeah. But yeah, I think that is, I cannot overstate just how much I was inspired by that. And, uh, when I talk about the book is really modeled after those achievements, you know, I do mean it. It's uh, yeah. those stories at Barclays and at uh, Adidas and BMW and uh, um, Sky Betting, where, where uh, these leaders and teams created greatness and yeah. in some cases dominate now how uh, we engineers do work in these organizations. Okay.
0: So that was the end of part one of the Gene Kim special. I know, I know, there's still so much to talk about. But the good news is we will be back with a second episode really, really soon. If you have any burning questions in the meantime, you can always drop Jean, Chris, Sandeep, or myself a message on social, and let's continue the conversation online. Links to our channels and other materials mentioned throughout the podcast can be found in the description below.